Continuing along the issues discussed in Baba Kama, specifically chapter 2, of what can be placed where and what has to be moved away from where. He begins with, actually, sub, this is a subject discussed in the Mishnah, elaborated upon in the Talmud, as are many of these. And in order for us to understand, I believe what he's referring to is, as you enter into the city limits, it should look like a city. When you have large, leafy trees as you walk in, it looks like a forest. So therefore, the entry to the city is not a place to put large, leafy trees. That should be put on the outskirts or perhaps in the center of the city. Otherwise, you're making the Balagan. It has to be, a, for example, you go to a place called, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Manhattan. So you have a city, and then in the middle of the city, you have Central Park, which has large, leafy trees. Why don't they put the trees all over Manhattan? Because the city is the city and the park is the park. So that's the idea. It's not that there can't be a tree in the city. We're talking about the approach to the city should be city-like and not forest-like or park-like. I believe that's the meaning. It doesn't mean there can't be a tree in the city. A tree grows in Brooklyn. Elon, we move away the tree, you know, here from the boundary of the city. 25 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So we want the beginning of the city to be city-like. You want the park or forest area to be at least 25 cubits away. We're talking about a specific leafy tree, like a carrot tree or a wild fig tree. 50 cubits, about 75 feet. They play here for the appearance of the city, because the city looks more attractive when it's surrounded by open space. We don't want to crowd the entry of the city with forest, with park. It should be park area and city area. Any tree that violates this and is too close to the beginning of the city, they cut it down, regardless of who it belongs to. However, if it was a newly developed city, you know how it works with cities. Cities kind of get bigger. If the tree came before the city, then the people, the residents of the city, have to pay the guy who's treated. They have to reimburse him. And if there was doubt, we're not sure which one came first. If there's doubt, there's no money. He can take his tree, we'll get lumber from it, and go. Or if he can replant it, that's fine. You know, generally speaking, very precious trees are replanted in other places, such as oak trees and, and so on, which, which have to be moved, are replanted. We, we had some oak trees here, and uh, they were in the building area, and, and so it was a, a very lengthy, expensive project where we had to have the oak removed with its roots, and uh, the intent was to replant it elsewhere. It's, it's a whole project because oaks are protected, and whenever possible, they don't let you take down an oak, so it's not so simple. In fact, just for, for what it's worth, one of my sisters and brother-in-law, the family, the Rifkins, Rabbi and Mrs. Rifkin, are the Rebbe Shluchim in New Orleans, in the state of Louisiana. So my, my sister was talking to my wife, and she said that they brought an oak tree in her neighborhood, and the oak tree says, we planted from Encino, California. So I sent regards to my sister with the oak tree. There was a yellow ribbon tied around it. No, I'm just kidding about the ribbon. Okay. Days two. We don't know too much about this, because, you know, we're not big into farming, at least not in Encino. But there is something called a threshing floor, where we do winnowing, where you separate the wheat from the shaft. So it's a whole process with, with winding and wind and so on. You have to move this away from the city, 50 cubits. In order that the wind not drive the shaft while it's winnowing and blow that stuff all over the city. Because you're going to have a shaft raining down upon the city. A person should also not make a large threshing floor even within his own property. Unless he had 50 cubits, about 75 feet in every direction of it. And again, the guy could say, hey, it's my property, I can do whatever I want. Not so simple. You can't do whatever you want in your property if it's damaging the next door property. So that the straw or the shaft should not cause harm to the plantings of his neighbor or his plowing, his, his unplowed field. If he goes to plow, he's going to have straw all over the place or shaft. Similarly speaking, we can't just do whatever we want to because it's our property. Certain toxic uses and chemically damaging uses and inappropriate uses because of the odor they create and so on should not be within a residential area or within a planting field area. These should be outside the city limits where you go into commercial hazardous neighborhoods and it stinks. You drive through, you have to hold your nose. You have to drive through those neighborhoods. You move processing animal carcasses. Or graves. You don't have a cemetery in the middle of the city. For Jews, it compounds the problem because a Kohen can't be anywhere near a cemetery. But in general, cemeteries are outside the city limits usually, at the edge of the city. Or leatherworks. Leatherworks, especially then, the process of leatherworks created horrible smells. And they also used 
a lot of manure to process the leather and other stuff. It has to be removed 50 amas. talks about, and we learned earlier in the laws of marriage, that uh, if a guy is a leather worker, then his wife can complain and say, I don't, I don't like what you're doing. You know, change your trade. Go into spices. Because the guy stinks. And, and, you know, I don't want this. So that's like the, one of the smelliest trades there are. At least in that world. The fact that carcasses of animals are found at leatherworks before the hide is skimmed. Feces are used in leather-making process, causing this place to produce an extremely foul odor. Furthermore, leatherworks... So he says here, not only is the odor of leatherworks just disgusting, but it also damages a person's health. And years later, there are lawsuits. Therefore, this additional restriction which we're about to learn is placed. The Borsiki, the leather factory, the leatherworks, should only be put on the eastern side of the city. And this refers to Israel and the land surrounding it, where the desert is to the east. And the hot air blows from the east. Why? Why do we want the hot air from the east? Because the eastern winds are hot. And it reduces the damage of this horrible odor. So you want to put it to the east side of the city, it will benefit from the east winds. Here in California, we have similar winds to that. It's called the Santa Ana winds, which are hot. And they come from a particular direction. Continuing with the laws of the neighbors doing certain activities in their property that might bring damage to their neighbor, how they need to make sure not to do it, directly or indirectly, with specific conditions. One who wants to make a... Uh, a mishra is a place to soak flax in the type of a pool or a cistern in the ground, to, uh, or just a hole in the ground, to soak flax adjacent to a vegetable garden that belongs to his, his friend, his neighbor. Because the water of the soak will be swallowed into the ground, absorbed in the earth. And then eventually the chemical from the flax that gets absorbed in the water and then in the ground will ruin or damage the vegetables. Or he planted, a creation is a certain type of leek um, next to uh, onions, the leek will eventually decrease the, um, the flavor, or weak, weaken the flavor of the onions. Or he planted mustard, mustard plants, near a beehive, because the bees will eat the, um, the leaves. They don't eat mustard seed, but they will eat on from the leaves of the plant. And it will ruin the honey. Um, how does it ruin the honey? The Rambam, in a different commentary of the Mishnah, says it will make the honey sharp. It will be honey mustard, and so to speak. Um, so the honey won't be as sweet as it should be. And Rashi says that um, a different reason, that when the bees will nibble on the leaves, it will make them thirsty. It will dry them out, and they will consume their honey instead of depositing it into the, into the honeycombs. So it will, um, it will uh, decrease the honey in that way. And, all the, and, and other things and the like. In these cases, he does not need to distance himself to the extent that no damage will happen. There is some type of distancing, which we'll see later in the end, but he doesn't have to distance himself to the extent that there will never be damage from the soaking of the flax, from that water that will be absorbed in the ground, or distancing that bees should have zero access to the, to the um, mustard leaves, or the leek and the, and the onion. On the contrary, the nizak, the ones who it was being damaged, the person whose property or items will be damaged, he needs to distance himself if he wants that the damage should not come to him. The reason is, the reason is because the person who's doing the activity is doing it on his own property. And the damage is happening on its own. It's indirect. There's no direct damage happening. He's not causing it what's called biyadayim. He's not actively damaging. He's doing a, a, an activity that will ultimately bring damage. And that is the nizak, the one who damage will happen to, that's the one who should distance himself. When do we say that he does not have to distance himself? That he doesn't have to go away, go far. When the damage will come on its own after his actions, the, the one who is doing the action, after his action ceases. During the activity, there is no damage. And at the time he's performing the action, there's no damage. It will only happen later. The activity of this one who is doing it in his property. will actually bring damage to his colleague during the activity. And even, it's as if he is damaging with his own hands, even though technically it's indirect. In other words, if, as he is soaking the flax, the damage will happen right away, even though it's indirect, he's only causing it to happen, but because it's happening during the activity, it's as if he's actually doing it by hand, like spilling the chemical on the, um, 
on the vegetables. And he gives an analogy. Hold on, what does this compare to? He has someone who is standing in his, own, in his own domain. And he's shooting arrows to the courtyard, to the yard of his friend. And he says, I'm doing it in my property. I'm shooting arrows on my own home. Obviously, you can't do that. You're shooting it directly into the other one's property. Which obviously will stop him. We will prevent him from doing that because he's causing damage. And the same thing, all the rest of the distancing of damages, which we mentioned before, in this concept, if they did not, if he did not distance himself, and the action is immediately producing the damage, the result, it's as if he brought the damage with his arrows. Therefore, there is a minimum amount to distance oneself, as we will see right now. You do have to distance, the um, separate, the soaking of the flax from the vegetables, and the leek from the onions, and the mustard plant from the, from the bees. At least three hand breaths, plus a little bit more. So there should not be any direct damage with his hands. But to distance so far that there will never be damage, even later on, on its own, um, when the roots will, will go further, or when the water will be absorbed, when the, uh, the plant will grow, and the bees will fly larger distances, he does not have to distance himself, because that's called indirect damage. So less than three hand breaths would be called, or exactly three hand breaths would, call, would be called direct damage. As long as it's a little bit more than three hand breaths, there's no direct splashing or direct damage, as if he's, not as if he's feeding the bees you know, the mustard leaf, or he's spilling uh, the flax water onto the vegetables. Halakha vav. The following rules apply when there are two people living in a home. One is on the lower story and one is on the second story. Baha Ali, um, the owner of the second story, that he would spill water, he would spill water in his room whether he's washing the floor or doing any other activity and using an abundance amount of water. And they are leaking down onto the room below. If between the first and second story there was a ceiling, a ceiling means a plaster ceiling. And generally, um, the, the, the Gemara says the common space between one floor and the second floor was that you know, there was a ceiling below and then a floor above. But between them there was a three hand breaths of plaster, which means a pretty thick layer of plaster which would absorb water. So if there was this maziva, this plaster ceiling, that the water would be completely absorbed when the resident above is spilling the water. And only after the one living on top ceases to spill water. Stop spilling the water. The water will be absorbed or will go through and through the plaster and will come down and drip onto the, 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 the residents below. In that case, then the one living downstairs needs to fix the problem, create that ceiling of plaster, and distance himself from the damage. Again, because the damage is indirect. He's spilling the water. It's being absorbed in the ceiling. And only afterwards, it will, it will leak from the ceiling into the, lower, uh, in, in, into the lower floor. So the one living below should create some, waterproof, some waterproofing layer of something which will not allow the water to leak into his home or a drainage system. However, if there's no ceiling of three hand breaths, but right away when he spills the water from the, in the top floor, the water will immediately go down. It's as if he's doing damage with his arrows, as mentioned before. And the one living upstairs has to fix the damage, create that plaster layer or some drainage system or waterproofing, or stop pouring water. And the same applies to all similar matters. In the traditional um, text of Rambam, there seems to be a line, a line missing here. There seems to be two identical lines that were pretty similar. But Misha Ilon, it says if somebody had a tree in his field close to a pit, a cistern, a water reservoir, of his friend, and many editions of Rambam add in here, which means somebody who has a field near a cistern of his friend and he wants to plant a tree, the owner of the cistern cannot stop him and tell him, don't plant a tree. The roots of your tree are going into my cistern and they're going to damage it. This is a damage that comes on its own after a long time and the roots expand. And while he planted the tree in his own field, there was no damage. To the, to the cistern. It's not direct. Just like this one dug a pit, a cistern in his property, the other one planted a tree in his property. And the same would apply, Ruvain, that's digging a pit. And as he's going down, digging downward, he found, he bumped into roots of Shimon, of his neighbor, in his own field. Now, if he was digging a pit and he bumped into roots, he can actually cut the roots and continue digging his cistern and he can even keep the wood for himself as firewood, let's say. 
However, if he's digging the pit in his own property, but it's within 16 feet, sorry, 16 cubits, 16 amma, and amma is approximately 18 inches, some opinions say up to 22 inches. So if it's within 16 amma, 16 cubits of the tree, he still has the right to cut the roots because he's digging his own property. However, they belong, if they have value, they belong to Shimon, and he has to give him the roots, so to speak, for firewood. If, however, he does not need to dig a pit, a cistern, but what's happening is the roots of his neighbor's tree are coming out into the field. So now they're surfacing. The roots from the neighbor's tree are surfacing in the field of his neighbor, and now he can't, so to speak, plow. He can't work that section. So what he's allowed to do, he can go down three handbreadths and clear the roots in the top three handbreadths of the soil. So it should not disturb the plow. It should not stop the plow from, uh, from plowing. Any root that he finds within the three handbreadths, he can cut it off. In these cases, he does not have to worry that by cutting the roots, he will dry up and possibly uh, you know, ruin the tree of his friend. Because he is digging in his own property. And that's allowed. You're doing something in your property. And like we said before, the damage is indirect. It doesn't happen immediately. So this is allowed. If there's someone who is friend, his neighbor had a field that had, um, that, that had vineyards, vines. Vines. Well, the vineyard had vines planted in his field. Shari or other trees. Ubahu, and he wants to come now. He wants to come now and plant in his own field vines in proximity of his neighbor's vines, you know, near, near the line, near the borderline of the fields, and the trees near trees. He must distance himself four cubits away from the other tree. What is the reason for this? We'll see in a minute. When does this apply in Israel? That you have to distance at least if one already had a tree in his property and you want to plant a tree or a vine at the end of your property, you must distance four cubits. However, outside Israel, between vine and vine, only two cubits must be distance. However, between the vine and other trees, maybe honestly, one is from other trees to other trees. In that case, even outside of Israel, needs four cubits. There are two explanations. One is that in Israel, they used to use wide plows, and it was four cubits wide. So you, you're planting a tree. You don't want to plant in a way that when you're going to need to plow between your tree, you will you will have to enter the other person's field, or uh, or he will have to um, or damage his tree. Which means, according to some explanation, that it's not enough to distance yourself four cubits from the neighbor's tree, but you have to distance yourself four cubits from the neighbor's borderline, because you don't want to enter his field as you're servicing your own tree with a white plow. And outside of Israel, certain trees, two, two cubits of a, of a plow was used, and therefore two cubits is enough. Um, another explanation is that um, the soil type, or the type of plants in Israel, the way it was, that it would expand, the roots would expand more, and they would need more nourishment. So you need to distance four cubits in order to allow breathing space for the trees. However, if there was a fence between your field and the neighbor's field, in that case, it wasn't only a line in the ground, as a borderline, but it was actually a wall. Anywhere, one, each one can plant up to the gate because it's a clear distinction and you can't pass through anyway with the plow, and therefore, each one is planting in his own business. They don't have to be worried about what's happening on the other side of the fence for damage purposes. Somebody who is, for a colleague's tree, was leaning over into his field, the branches, and they're low, and they're possibly interfering with his activity in his field. Koit says he's allowed to trim the tree, cut the branches. He can cut as high as the harness that sits on top of the plow, which means it was a plow that would be schlepped by, by bulls or cows, usually. And on top of that plow, there was a harness that was used to control the animal. So that has to be able to pass through freely without the branches of the tree uh, um, interfering. So he's allowed to cut that off. However, if it's a carrot tree or a wild fig tree, type of a wild fig, the shikma, in that case, he's allowed to cut off, cut off the branches uh, completely as high as he needs, uh, um, in other words, as high as the, as the borderline. He can cut all the way up. And the reason is because in that case it's not only the very leafy trees and it's not only needed for the it's not only needed for the plow, but actually it could be blocking sunlight, and therefore he's allowed to cut it. The same thing if a tree was leaning over from his friend's field into his field, and a basashlochin, a basashlochin is a type of a field that needs a lot of water. And besides the rain, they have to bring more water. And in that case, shade of a tree would uh, would, would uh, minimize the amount of water it would receive and that would damage it. Or it's leaning over um, to a to a orchard, to a um, over trees. In that case as well, you can cut all the branches belonging to the nature to the neighbor until they're even with the property line. But in that case, whether it's sunlight or rain, he needs, needs to get as much as possible, and therefore he's allowed to cut off all the branches that are leaning into his property. 
Rambam Mishneh Torah. Hilchais, the laws of Shechenim, neighbors, Aleph 1. We're learning laws of what can be done and what cannot be done. Uh, items, acts that irritate neighbors. I'm sure you've irritated your neighbor once or twice in your lifetime, or your neighbor has irritated you. So there actually are laws governing what can be done and what cannot be done, all stemming from the Talmud, Mishnah and Talmud, Tractate, Boba Basra. If somebody set up a threshing floor within his own property, and we learned earlier that if somebody sets up a permanent threshing floor, he has to move 50 cubits, that's a big distance, 75 feet from his neighbor. But this is just a temporary threshing floor. What's the problem with the threshing floor? The winnowing process causes stuff to fly all over the place, and all of the chaff and the straw can ruin the neighbor's garden and what have you. So therefore, establishing a threshing floor on the boundary of one's neighbor is a problem. A or, for example, thank you, kava beisakise, if somebody establishes a latrine, a bathroom. You have uh, certain situations where you have, for example, a big party, and people bring in temporary outhouses, what they call Johnny on the spot. Where do they place them? On the neighbor's property, right next to the neighbor. And the neighbor is suffering from these three or four latrines, which are causing a terrible odor to come over. The guy says, hey, it's my property. I can, put, I, I can do whatever I want in my property. Not so simple. Or any type of activity that causes dirt to fly or uh, sand, dust. So here we have the winnowing, which causes shaft to fly, the latrine, which causes odor to travel, or anything that causes dust to travel. One must distance these activities in one's own property from the neighbor's property. How far? Far enough so the dust should not reach the neighbor. Or the odor must dissipate by the time he gets to the neighbor. Or what have you, the dust or the shaft. Today, in order that he not harm his neighbor. The argument, it's my property, I can do what I want. It's not true. You cannot do what you want. You have to be sensitive to your neighbor. Even if it is the wind that brings the dirt or the shaft or the odor, it's not me, it's the wind. Or it brings the dust. Or the loose strands of flax or the shaft or what have you. And causes it to reach the neighbor. So it's not me, it's the wind. Go talk to Mr. Wind. <coughs> I'm just going to have a sip of tea to wake up my voice. Thank you. I made a broch on the water earlier. He must cause distance between that activity and the boundary line. Simply, how far does he have to move? Far enough so it doesn't happen. As far as it takes. Even under the condition of a wind. What kind of wind? Normal wind condition. Because this would be similar to someone who's shooting arrows in his own property. The arrows are falling into the neighbor's property. He says, what do you want from me? It's my property. I can shoot as many arrows as I want to. Not if it ends up in the neighbor's property. So also the odor, the shaft. The dust is traveling into the neighbor's property. You have to distance yourself. Now, it's interesting that in halacha, this is called grama denizikim, an indirect cause of damage, which means I'm not doing anything intentional. I'm doing what I'm doing. What I'm doing is perfectly legal, but as a byproduct of what I'm doing, it's causing damage. So therefore, he says, in two, even though there is an obligation to create distance between these activities and the boundary line, if the normal average wind brought the shaft or, or, or the dust, or what have you, and cause damage, does the person have to pay the damage? Let's say he caused dust to go over, over the neighbor's vegetable garden. Although he should move it, but still he's exempt from paying damage. Why? Because he did not do it alone. The wind did it. The wind helped him. This damage does not come from the activity alone. If there was no wind, there wouldn't be damage. Even though the commentaries say that we learned earlier that when somebody's fire travels to the neighbor and burns the neighbor's house down, he has to pay, because the person is responsible for his fire. Even if it's the wind that carried it, the difference is that the fire clearly is something that is created and dangerous and has to be controlled, whereas the other activities are more limited in the responsibility. There's a lot of discussion here, which now is not the time or place for it. Moving right along to Gimel 3. What if somebody does something that, I'll tell you the truth, in all my years in this world I've never really done, so I'm not really sure what he's talking about, but I'm sure we have a few farmers here. When somebody crushes groats, obviously crushing groats, G-R-O-A-T-S, is a big deal. Or some other similar activity. Mr. Shalei is in his own backyard. He's in his own field. But as he is beating the groats, because I guess that's the way you crush groats, you beat them. 
where there is such activity, such shaking, such tremors, he's shaking the adjoining courtyard of his neighbor. The whole neighborhood is shaking because he's crushing groats. It is to such an extent that the cover of the barrel came off of the barrel. Or what have you, the cover of a jug falls off a jug, which means it is considerable. How considerable? Stuff is falling. This is like causing damage with one's arrows. There's no difference between an arrow and a tremor. And he has to cause distance in order that the neighbor's jug should not lose its cover. Or he has another option. He can cease and desist. He can stop doing these activities. You want to pound groats, do it somewhere else. In Hezek, based on Nidnu and any damage that was done during this activity where the earth was trembling, he's obligated to pay. This is a direct result of his force. So these are all the laws of activities I do in my backyard that cause damage to you. Now, Kol is all of this distancing, Hoamuris, that we said in this chapter, and also the Prokham Shalmai in the earlier chapters, because we've learned chapter after chapter about these issues, where if you're harming your neighbor, you have to create distance. In Lehirchik, what if the guy did not create distance? And the neighbor observed it. The neighbor sees me pounding groats, and he says, Hey, how are you? Have a good day. Bishosak. And he didn't say anything. He didn't object. In Jewish law, if you don't file an objection, you kind of okay it. In that case, the message is that the guy waived his right to protest. He can't change his mind one day and say, you know, this has been going on for too long. You're giving me a headache. Stop it already. No, because enough time passed where the message was sent that it's okay. And of course, the big debate is how long. A real chazok, a real established right, takes three years. But when the guy sees and sort of okays it, it could be a lot less than that. The who provided that it's obvious from the neighbor Shemachal that he forgave it. Today, for example, for example, the guy came and says, let me help you beat your groats. Uh-huh. If you're helping me beat my groats, if you're helping me set up the outhouse, if you're helping me with all the activities that are causing damage, that means you can live with it. So he said, go ahead and do it. Or he saw that he'd set up these things on the boundary line. He did not object. He has acquired the right to do it. Here is the rule. The rule is, anyone who establishes a right to be able to do damage, to be able to shake up the neighbor's property, to be able to bring odor or dust or what have you, he has now acquired this right. It has become an acquired right. As we explained earlier, the whole concept of chazaka, you establish a right. When does this apply? And here he qualifies. And I guess what I said earlier is not true. When does this apply? If we're talking about other forms of damage, not the ones listed above, but there are four types of damage that can never be established as rightful. These four types of damage, stated in this chapter, which are smoke. A guy cannot constantly create smoke. He's doing stuff that causes smoke, and the smoke, I'm going to choke from the smoke. Or the odor from a latrine or dust, or any other similar thing, or the tremors. All of the above, you can't establish the right to create smoke and, and, and just create the whole neighborhood, transform the whole neighborhood into a toxic waste. Even if quite a few years passed and the victim of this damage was silent, these are acts that can never be established as a right. He can go back and say, you know, I've tolerated this long enough. So these are major sources of damage to a neighbor. And so also, as we learned earlier, Hezekiah, damage of vision, where a guy cuts a window and looks into your swimming pool. Where you need separation. He can coerce and loss his to create a wall of separation. Anytime he wants to come, he should be as we explained. Why are these different? What about all other more minor forms of damage? Because these are so serious that the mind of a person cannot tolerate this for too long. We can safely assume that he's a normal person. He's not going to forgive. Because this damage, when you have some kind of a, a factory that's creating smoke day in and day out, or you have a latrine on the property line, or you have a winnowing taking place, or you have dust being kicked, all of the above, it's too much. So one, anytime, even after years, one can object. However, if a deal was reached, and along with this deal came what's called a kinyan, an act of acquisition, then then the guy can no longer retract. And this is the power, the dynamic power of a kinyan, of an act of acquisition. And of course, the debate could happen later, whether there was or was not this kinyan. 
if somebody established a right to involve himself in a type of labor that creates blood, nobody wants blood on their boundary line, or carcasses, or anything similar have been claiming in their places. And because he has blood, and because he has carcasses, what happens? The ravens come. The uh, birds of prey come. You ever see a garbage dump? You have all these massive, ugly birds circling. You don't want this in your backyard. At least I don't want it in my backyard. And the ravens come, or what have you. Because of the blood, because they're attracted to blood. And then they start eating the carcasses. And then they really torment the neighbor. First of all, because they have voices. The sound of these birds are obnoxious. It's And the sounds they make. Then they have blood on their claws, and then they carry the blood to the neighbor's garden. Suddenly the tomatoes become red. That was a joke. They sit on the trees, and they sully the produce of the trees. So if the neighbor who was affected by this was a very nervous guy, what he calls irritable, you know anybody who's irritable? I know a few. Or the guy is sick, he's not well. He says, will you stop those darn birds? They're driving me crazy. So the neighbor bought him earplugs. The blood is killing the neighbor's produce. He has to stop that labor which causes the blood or the carcasses which attracts the ravens. Or he has to make it far enough until it doesn't cause damage. She has exact because this type of damage is constant. They may similar they have to the odor of the tree. or similar you can't establish this right. It's just obnoxious and intolerable. or similarly speaking, the members of a courtyard of a lane, the members of a courtyard, and one of them became a tradesman. And suddenly there's such traffic going on in this lane or in the courtyard. and nobody stopped him, nobody objected. and now he established the right. people are going in and out to buy, it's a balagan. He opens up a high traffic area of business. The Shoshku and he, they're silent. That's not something that you can establish because it's crazy making. The Ashwam Bakal Ace, Laka, at any time they can object. Even a long time later, the layman is saying, Listen, we tried, but it's too much. We can't sleep. You opened up a 24 hour supermarket, 3 o'clock in the morning. They had, there's a, an adorable story told where this guy is visiting his friend. And uh, he wakes up in the middle of the night. He says, You know, I'm sorry to wake you up. He says to the host, But I've been looking and looking and looking. There's no clock. There's no watch. How do you know what time it is? I have no idea what time it is. He says, Oh, I don't need a clock or a watch. I have a chauffeur. He says, a chauffeur? How does a chauffeur tell you what time it is? He says, watch me. He opens up the window, he blows the chauffeur, he says, will you shut up? The neighbor says it's 3 o'clock in the morning. He says, no, you know what time it is? The chauffeur tells time. So, you can't sleep from the balagan. This is an established source of damage. Like smoker dust. The Rambam says, it is in this manner that the sages and scholars have established a law. What if somebody established a source of possible damage to a neighbor? And he established that right, which we learned earlier can be done. For example, he cut a window into his wall. And the neighbor did not object. Or he brings an irrigation ditch. Or he didn't create enough distance between himself and the neighbor's property. And the one who established this act. The perpetrator said, you're objecting. You can't object, he says to his neighbor. You're the one that said, why don't you cut a window into your wall? Why don't you bring an irrigation ditch in? You told me to. Or you saw what I did and you said, it's okay. A hook on or whatever damage we're talking about was obviously recognizable. We shall you silent. You never objected. And the victim of this damage says, what are you talking about? This is the first time I saw this. I had no idea. I just realized. Shamari said, when I saw this, I objected. And you said, I'll close distance. I asked him, or I'll close it up, the irrigation ditch, or the window. And then every day I come to you and I say, no, no. And he says, mañana, Morgan, Stanley. Or something similar. I'm sorry. You, you are pushing me day by day. Because you want to establish your right. You figure if 30 days goes by or what have you, you're going to have an established right. So you keep telling me, mañana, tomorrow. And there's a debate about what really happened. I did object. I didn't object. You said it's okay. I didn't say it's okay. So what's the story? How do we know it's really okay? The answer is we look at the video. The Chal in all of these situations, okay, it's more similar. Because the perpetrator has established a reality, the victim has to bring proof that the guy's lying. And if he doesn't, then this becomes the established fact. However, Yeshua Hamazik has to be a puppet. The halacha requires that the perpetrator take an oath, a rabbinic oath called the Shavuos that in fact, the story came down as he said, uh, paragraph 7, the last paragraph of this rather short chapter, 
if you establish the right to do damage in an activity which you can't do that, as we learned earlier. For example, which activities did we learn earlier? You can't establish a right to perpetrate constantly. Again, for example, Oshon, when you cause smoke, a guy has a, a rubber factory and he's burning rubber, and the whole neighborhood gets polluted with smoke. He says, hey, I, you know, you know, I've established my right. You can't do that. Or base a kisi or a latrine or kayetzeban or something similar. The Torah Namazik and the perpetrator argues and says, he says, hey, not only did you agree, but we made a symbolic act of acquisition. We lifted a handkerchief and it, it was so official. The perpetrator has to bring proof that the deal was made and the kingdom was made. But if he can't, he has to see the victim. That this never happened. This agreement, this act of acquisition, and then he can be caused to remove his source of damage. End of chapter 11. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Shainim. We get into a fantastic subject. Peter Shnei Moser, chapter 12. There is an amazing, interesting law in Torah. The caption for this law is, in halachic language, Dina Debar Netzra. That's Aramaic. The laws of a bordering neighbor. And I'll give an introduction to the law. The law says, if I have a piece of property, and I put up the property for sale, it could be Shashtil, ZG's of Gurnish, it's a quiet sale, and all of a sudden some guy from Malibu buys the property. And then my neighbor, who has been dying for this property for years because he wants to make his field bigger, hears about it, and he says, gosh darn, why didn't you sell it to me? I would have paid the same price. The halacha says, because he is a neighbor. He has a right to go to the buyer. He says, how much did you pay? $50,000, has $50,000, and it's mine. Why? Because the Torah says the words, You should do that which is right and just in the eyes of God. This is right and just. The neighbor has a first right of refusal because he's a neighbor. But I sold it already. Well, he can go to the buyer, make him whole, and take the property. Now, like every other law, not so simple. But this is this fantastic law that we get into. Aleph 1, Ha'achin, if there are brothers. Or partners. They're coming to divide the field. If you have brothers who inherited the field from their father, or partners who are partners in a field, and now they want to split. Everybody wants to take their portion. If they were all the same, if it's all the same quality, there's no good and bad. Then we use space, size, measure. So if the field is an acre, one gets a half acre, and the other gets a half acre. Very simple. That's elementary once. But if one of them said, listen, give me my portion on the north side. I want it to be adjacent to my field. I have a field on the north side. So give me my half on the boundary of my field. And then I'll make it all one big field. We have to listen to him. If all things are equal. What if the other brother of the partner says, I don't want to do it. Well, it's too bad. You have to do it. Why? Because. Or as my mama blessed memory would say, why is a crooked letter. You can actually force him. Because stopping this, is what they did in Sodom and Gomorrah. They just hurt people when they didn't even benefit from this. So if someone's going to benefit and you're not going to lose, be a good person. But if one of the portions was better, let's say the north side was a better half, a car of the north, or the north side was on a river, and you know water, it's all, it's all about water. If you have a big property that has no water, it's worth nothing. Somebody called years ago and donated the property in a place I never heard of, and I was so excited, it was so big, and then I found out there's no electricity and there's no water. So it was worth about 11 cents. A car of the or if it's close to a road, you need to have access. They appraised the better one compared next to the bad one. Yomar, and he says, listen, this appraisal came in for this, this appraisal came in for this. We'll work out the dollar amount. It's not a problem. I'll take a smaller part on the north side. Give me my value. Let's say the whole thing was appraised. For a million dollars, I'll take a half a million. Worth, you take a half a million worth, but let me have it on my boundary. What if, because I want it where I want it, then I'm getting a smaller piece of property because it is more valuable qualitatively? Great. Ain't shame like here, we don't have to listen. Because here, it's not equal pasqual. It's not so simple. Because the other guy could say, I like this. They have to do a lottery or however else they're going to make this division. Yeah. On my hand, maybe he said to them, Tanuli, give me Bashumashali with my appraisal, which means let's make it fair. I'll take half of the, of, of the measure from the bad side. I'm not even going to appraise until I'm the I'm giving you opportunity to take the better side. Because it has so much value for me that the properties adjoin that which I already own. And this one, some of the scholars decided that we should listen to him. I'm sympathetic to this. And that's how we should 
issue this halacha. What if a firstborn is splitting an inheritance? By Torah law, the firstborn gets double. So if there are four brothers and five acres, the oldest brother gets two acres and the other brother gets one acre each. He takes his two portions. The brothers can say to him, hey, you take one on the north and one on the other side. He says, no, let me have them together. So we should give it to him together. Because that has a right of an adjoining neighbor. But there's a law in the Torah, the Leverite marriage. The brother marries his brother's widow. His brother passed away. He marries her, his brother's widow by Torah law. And he gets to inherit his brother's property as well. Can he say, I want my brother's property adjacent to mine? No, this is not something that is classified as a right of continuous property. Because they're two different worlds. If the lottery brought it to one place, fine. If they brought it to two places, all this will be it. Gimel. And there is a diagram. What if there is a square property? This property on the east and the north side, there's a river. Water is important. The east and the north side has a river. And the other side, the south and west sides, have roads. So one side, in other words, the north, east side has a river. And the south, west side have roads. So what do we do? There's two brothers. Shouldn't everybody deserve river and road? Yes. You divide it on a diagonal line. So that each of them should have river. Here is a diagram. Mr. Producer, wake up. So here we have the property, the river, the road, and the division is diagonal. So now everybody has river and road. And they live happily ever after. What if he said, Give me this hip, which is adjacent to my property. We also listen to him. If something is good for one, the other one has nothing to lose. We force him to do it. Here's an interesting law. You have five brothers. One of the brothers needs money. Anybody know anybody who needs money? No, not, I mean, not here. One of the brothers, I mean, I should fit with the partners. He knew he was getting a piece of property in the inheritance. He went immediately and sold it. He found the guy who likes property. And he says, listen, buy my piece of the property. You know, there's five acres. I'll sell you an acre. Give me the money. So now the brothers have to share with some stranger from Malibu. I'm just kidding about the Malibu. Some of my best friends live in Malibu. The brothers could collectively get together and remove this buyer. Get out of here. This is our family plot. Who are you? What do you mean, who am I? I bought it. Well, we'll pay you. We'll make you old. The rest of the brothers give him. The rest of the partners give him. Dummy money. Which he gave. And he goes back to Malibu. Because they have a right not to have an alien. You know the definition of an alien. Somebody from Mars. Not to have a stranger being their neighbor. We have been partners, brothers. This is our turf. But I bought it. All right, we'll buy it from you. Hey, five. Eight furthermore, this is not all. There's more. If somebody sells his property to somebody else, his friend, which is on his boundary line, the neighbor who owns the adjacent property could come to the buyer and say, how much did you pay? Here's the money. Or the salary is saying to remove him. What about this buyer who's not a neighbor? He bought the property. What are you doing? Well, he bought the property as an agent of the neighbor. That's what we said. Because the neighbor has a right to the property. Whether he sold, or his emissary sold, or the court sold, it makes no difference. The neighbor has a right to remove the buyer. I need a producer. He has the law of a neighbor. Even if the buyer was a great Torah scholar, and a neighbor, not an immediate neighbor, but a neighbor, a relative to the seller, I sold it to my brother-in-law. And the neighbor, the adjacent neighbor, is an ignoramus. He's uh, just a boor. And he's distant. He's not relative. The adjacent neighbor always has precedence. Always has a priority position. Can forcibly remove the buyer. Pay him off. Why is this? What kind of law is this? It's not in the Torah. Where does this come from? This is a rabbinic ordinance based on the Dovah This factor is sourced. Because the verse says, as I said in my introduction, That which is upright and good in the eyes of God is the rest of the verse. Being at the sale is one... It's all the same. As far as the seller is concerned, his money is the same. It's better that the adjacent neighbor should purchase it than somebody from far away. So this is actually a halacha in Jewish law. What if there are a lot of neighbors? Uh-huh. Then they all have rights in this field that's being sold. It's divided. 
according to their number. You take the money and you give it, make hold the buyer. Provided they all came the same time. If one of them came first and removed the buyer, he paid off the buyer and he removed him. He himself acquires it. Why? Because he has the right, just like any neighbor. And he acted. So if somebody wants to come after him, they're going to have to displace him, but they can't displace him because he's a neighbor. He is a neighbor. So also if part of them came, and other neighbors were out of town, they were in Hawaii on vacation. They made a mistake. They said, we're turning off our cell phones. We should have a real vacation. And they missed the opportunity. So they remove him, and they keep it. So also if the sale is made by the seller to a neighbor, to one of the bordering neighbors, or one of the partners, the master of his business, even though he's not his partner in this land, he also acquires it because there is a relationship. And the rest of the neighbors, the rest of the partners, or the rest of the adjoining neighbors do not have a right to take it. And here there's a diagram where we have a property. We have four neighbors. So we create an X in the property create a triangular shape, and we sell it to four neighbors so that everybody gets a little bit more, provided that the buyer could be made whole. This is not about making the buyer lose money. If somebody sells everything he owns, his entire estate, to one person, he owns hundreds of properties. The neighbor, the adjoining neighbor of one property cannot remove this massive wholesale buyer. Because he acquired that one and another one at the same time. So also if somebody sells back to the original owner of this property, it's a mitzvah for the original owner to have his property back. So that is an exception. Because he's selling it to the original owner. He's buying it from a non-Jew. The Jewish court has no right to enforce this law with a non-Jew. The non-Jew is the seller. He can sell to whoever he wants to. This law is between the Jews. You shall do what is correct and right. It's a law in the Jewish community. You can't coerce the non-Jew to observe this law. What about somebody who beats the system? Zion. Knowing well that the neighbor can't do anything about it. Because the non-Jew doesn't have this mitzvah. If this was done intentionally, you can actually excommunicate this seller. Because he's trying to beat the system. It's not that we have anything against the non-Jew who bought the property. We have something against the guy who's trying to beat the system. Actually, until he accepts upon himself, all damage that's going to come to this neighbor from this sale. Or or better yet, if the non-Jew agrees to conduct himself with the laws of the Jewish community, allowing the neighbor to displace him. Which is not usually the situation, because he's not governed by this law. However, if he does not bear this responsibility and he causes damage, then the seller has to pay to make restitution. Now, this is about selling properties. Does it also affect renting properties? Haschidos, the renting of properties, does not have this law. Renting is not buying. Others disagree with the Rambam and say that renting for a day is buying for a day. But the Rambam says no. If a person designates a property as security for a loan, and back then people had access to their security, and then the seller ultimately sells it to the guy who had it for security. So the guy had entry to it already. The neighbor law does not apply. He doesn't have to take it away from this buyer and sell it to a neighbor. So also, if somebody sells a distant place in order to have money, in order to redeem a close place, he sold a bad quality property in order to redeem a good quality property. Or he got hit with a tax bill. He sold this property in order, he did a fire sale in order that he could pay tax. He sold it because somebody wanted it for burial grounds. Or he needed to support his wife or his daughters. There were special causes to this sale. There was an urgent sale with a good cause. None of these have this law. But the buyer acquires the property. And the rational, the rationale for all of the examples are that to displace the purchaser will harm the seller. Because this is all based upon doing good and just. You can't do good and just for one by harming the other one. So all of these above situations are situations where there would be harm to the seller. And here the Rambam explains, why not? Because all of these, the seller is desperate to sell. Fire sale. And he's selling it because he has to pay tax, because he has to pay his wife, because he has to pay his daughters. 
You claim a yes, but I'm that if you're going to say that the laws of neighbors apply, he's going to come to his neighbor. and say, listen, I am doing a fire sale. You're the neighbor. You want it? The guy's going to say, you're rushing me. Let me think about it. I'm not going to find a buyer. In a fire sale, you have to find a buyer that wants a fire sale. That's why it's called a fire sale. Obviously, you're going to take a discount, but you've got to sell it. And the buyer's going to say, you want me to lay out money, and I should pay you now so you could have money, but then your neighbor's going to come and displace me. I'm not interested. So sell it to begin with to the neighbor, but the neighbor is not flush with cash. The neighbor has to get financing. He's got to apply to the bank. He's got to meet a lot of requirements. So that's why fire sale transcends the limitations of this law. If the buyer argues and says, I bought it because the seller needed to pay tax or have it. he had another urgent need for money. The neighbor says, Check it out, you're a liar. You lie. They always lie. He wants to destroy my rights. He wants to nullify my rights. It's not true. There was no fire sale. It was a regular sale. The neighbor has to bring proof that the guy is not telling the truth, that it was not a fire sale. If he can prove that this is a lie, that it was a normal sale, then he can displace the buyer. If he couldn't bring proof, the buyer should take a rabbinic oath and go on his way. Even if there was uncertainty here as to whether it was or it wasn't, the buyer can only be removed with clear proof. Which the neighbor brings the buyer argued and said, you claim you're a neighbor, you're a thief, you don't even have real ownership of this field. You're only a sharecropper. You're a renter, you have collateral rights. Then the neighbor has to bring proof that he's truly the owner of this property. This is truly his, and it's, established. it's an established fact that it's his. Or anything similar. Again, that's why we have to run a title report in modern language. What if somebody sells a property to minor orphans? Orphans were not forbid orphaned by their father. Father passed away. And somebody was appointed to be the apotropus, to be the caretaker of this field. And so the caretaker decided that he wants to buy this and this field for these orphans. The caretaker was appointed to manage the estate of the orphans. They decided he wants to buy this property. Can the neighbor come and displace the orphans? Because it, the Torah says you should do that, which is right and just. Selling to orphans when their caretakers think they have to buy is also right and just. This wouldn't apply. If those people who are the managers and caretakers and executors of this property of the orphans decide that this is for them the best investment, then what greater mitzvah can the seller have? So also, these are all situations where there are exceptions to this rule of neighbor having a right to displace the buyer. If the buyer is a woman, back then in that culture, women did not buy property. But in the case where a woman did buy the property, it is so unusual that this law will not apply. This law of the neighbor displacing this buyer who's a woman doesn't apply. Because she doesn't have the habit of going and buying. She's not a regular real estate buyer. And she took a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of effort and bought this property. We want to give her a free pass. Being that she purchased it, it would be the right thing to do to let her hold on to it. Because again, she's not in the real estate market on a regular basis. And we don't want to take all the effort that she invested into a world that she's not familiar with and have it go nowhere. So there's a special dispensation. There's a special dispensation. We take this law and set it aside and let this woman keep the property. What if he sold to a person? We're not sure whether that person is a man or a woman. To a tumtum whose uh, gender is not clear, or an androgynous who is a combined gender. Here, the neighbor can displace them. Well, you can, tell, you can argue I'm a woman, well, you can argue he's a man. And now comes a situation. Today we have what is called a land lease. What is a land lease? You lease the land that you want, and then you do what you want on the land. You even build a house on it. How could you build a house on a land lease? Well, if you have a lease for 50 or 100 years, you can do it. But the fact of the matter is, the land belongs to one, and the house, or in the case of a field, if the, produce, the trees belong to someone else. I, I had experience with this, and I'm, I'm telling you right now, you should know, trust me, that bankers are a little bit hesitant to give loans on land lease properties. And what if the land belonged to one of them? Not being in the building on the land. The owners are the trees in the field. Shall belong to another owner? So there are two owners here, the landowner and the building owner. Now the question is, who's the owner? So if the guy who owns the building, or the guy who owns the trees, also has some level of right in the land which was discussed at great length earlier when yes and when no, as long as they have some right in the land, then each of them are considered a neighbor, and this is discussed in the laws of sales, chapter 24. 
The fecals, therefore, in Machar, Echad, Mem, Chalki, if one of them sold his portion, Chavedim, Mesalach, Elokeh, the other can remove the buyer and make him whole. Ah, but, but if all the guy has his trees, or all the guy has his house, and he has no ownership whatsoever of the land, he doesn't have any rights at all. Whenever the owner of the land wishes, he can actually theoretically tell the guy who has the house, remove your trees, get your trees off my land, knock down your house, and the owner of the field sold, here the purchaser requires the rights of the seller. And the owner of the trees or building cannot remove him as a neighbor. And if the owner of the building or tree sold, the owner of the land could displace him. The closing paragraph of chapter 12. What if there was a space, a division, a separation between him and the field of the neighbor? It was not continuous. It was not. The neighbor says, I want the field because I could just make my field bigger. Well, what if there was some kind of separation? Like, they call a row of date palms. Well, the date palms are separating anyway. So you can't run your plow. There was a skyscraper. Now you say a skyscraper in Yiddish. That means something that scratches the clouds. A crowd, cloud scratcher. A, a mighty building. A deep ditch. So there's no continuity here anyway. What is the guy coming saying, I'm a neighbor, I'm a neighbor, you're not such a neighbor. Rayan, we evaluate him. If it's possible to plant even one row of produce within this intervening cavity, by putting one row in there, you can combine both fields. Then he has the rights of a neighbor, displacing the buyer. But if you can't plant anything, because there is all kinds of impediments, there are all kinds of stuff there, he has no right to remove the buyer. End of chapter 12.